Guten Tag, everyone. I am your host, Caden Pradhan, and today I'm joined once more by Harrison Coleman. Hello, I'm Harrison. And Bavia Surapanani. Hi, everyone. Apologies all for our brief hiatus. I was away on a trip last week, but we are back once more to bring you some fresh analysis and insight into the week's news. We will be returning briefly to the Russia-Ukraine war, as we must, because since we recorded last episode, there have been numerous developments. But first, I think it's appropriate to take a minute of silence for those who have been affected by the war, those who have lost their lives, those who have been injured, displaced, or affected in any way at all. The United Nations estimates 1,417 civilians have been killed. And the real figure is, of course, estimated to be significantly higher than that. But nonetheless, we will be taking a minute of silence for those who have been impacted by this war. All right. Well, thank you for sticking with us through that. It's appropriate to do that, I think, in the memory of those who have been lost. Mm -hmm. But now we have to talk about the events that have transpired. So, Harrison, tell me a little bit about what has happened since we recorded the previous episode. Well, it ha as you said, it, it has been a while. And in Ukraine, things have... It's hard to say whether they've gotten better or gotten worse. In terms of human displacement... And uh, and I guess uh, death, things have gotten worse. We have seen, you know, many people die, mostly on, on the Ukrainian side for civilians, but also there were a good number of Russian military deaths. Of course, the numbers are hard to exactly calculate because there's just so much coming out of Ukraine. It's hard to parse fact from fiction. But we do know that the, the, the number for both is in the is in the four digits, so at least a, a thousand on each side, and probably much, much more than that. In recent days, Russia has been speaking with Ukraine diplomatically, although nothing has come of that as of yet, though we have seen Russian military forces have backed off from, from Kiev. As of yesterday, actually, uh, many news outlets are classifying the Battle of Kiev as a Ukrainian victory as is Wikipedia for some strange reason. You think it'd be, it had to be over first. But that is besides the point. Uh, in, in recent days, Russia has restructured its military forces in Ukraine. It would be inaccurate to call this a retreat or a withdrawal, but re restructuring is more along the proper lines for what they've been doing. Notably, as the Russian forces have retreated, we have we have seen the atrocities that have been committed. I want to bring our listeners' attention to the small town of Bucha, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, in 
in uh, which is a suburb north of Kiev, where civil where over three hundred civilians have been found murdered by the Russian forces. Uh, we have seen shallow graves, uh, some s summary executions with people with people ha having died with their hands tied behind their back, and just other evidence of torture that I will not mention here, but it is truly gruesome. I, I hope I can properly convey the serious nature of this of these events. They it is truly horrific, and I think that that as Russia continues to either pull out or be forced out of Ukraine, we're going to find several more Buchas, although I, I hope I am wrong. You're absolutely right, Harrison, in that as the force, Russian forces have been withdrawing, we've been uncovering these atrocities more and more. And I think it's also true to say that, at least for the present, Russia has been refocusing its attacks towards the east side of the country and withdrawing a little from Kiev. That's correct. And we're not entirely sure the military or diplomatic reasons behind this. It's unclear to me why they would pull out of one area of the country only to refocus their efforts on another. Surely the diplomatic talks would either have been a failure and therefore have led to a re-bolstering of Russian efforts in all parts of the country or a total pullout. Bavia, why do you think Russia has made this decision? Yeah, absolutely. Like Harrison said, there is a lot we don't know about this war going on between Russia and Ukraine. And one of those major factors is what is backing up Russia's decisions? Why are they making these decisions? And as Harrison said, Russia has primarily pulled out of Kiev and they're moving their efforts to the east. And I think what this goes back to is also they're currently in the middle of the siege of Mariupol, a port city. Um, around 80% of the homes there have been damaged. Civilians are trapped without food or water. And many believe that Russia's siege of Mariupol is intended to build a land bridge between the Crimean Peninsula, which they occupied a few years ago, and the eastern separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, which are kind of what started this entire war in the first place, entering those places. So a lot going on there. Again, as Harrison said, we don't really understand what is backing up these decisions. But again, there's a lot going on. We will continue to see and hopefully begin to understand why Russia is making these decisions. That's absolutely true, Bavia. And the bombings, the loss of life and the destruction of property continues unabated. So as Harrison said, it's entirely unfactual to say that there's any kind of retreat going on in Ukraine. There's just a slight restructuring of the efforts. There has been further evidence of tension arising within Russia. Anti-war protests continue muted where they can before the protesters are arrested or detained. But there's also some tension coming up between Russia's military leaders and Putin himself. There's been talk that Russia's military leaders are misinforming Putin, overinflating their successes in Ukraine, and now there's said to be some friction between them on how to continue with this offensive, with some generals stating that due to the high military losses, there should be more of a withdrawal, but Putin continuing on his sort of unholy crusade, which suggests to me a lack of internal cohesion within the Russian government and within the Russian army and within the other military forces. So Harrison, I was wondering what your thoughts were on this, on these rising tensions. I think the actions of, of Putin abroad point to a, a larger sense of insecurity at home. And we see in Russia right now that 
the people that the people there has been impacted by the the, the sanctions to a, a degree that we cannot fathom. I have seen videos of Russians uh, stealing food, stealing sugar from from markets because the prices are too high, or inflation has gotten so bad, or the controls are so restrictive. Uh, what we are seeing in Russia is. Uh, a breaking down, essentially, of Putin's mythos as this savior of Russia in in, in the post-Soviet era. Although that can be that can be you know the critics can be silenced if the war turns out well, which I don't think it will for Russia anymore. There was a time when I thought you know Russia would steamroll Ukraine, but that is obviously not the reality that we are living in. So I think that the longer this war drags on, the more desperate Putin becomes to win. And what winning looks like in his mind is unfathomable to us. We don't know the, the complex realities of the, the Russian geopolitical state. We don't know whether, whether the people are getting really that angry. We don't know how Putin's inner circle is. The one thing I think, I think it's important to keep in mind is that no man rules alone. Putin still relies on a large network of regional governors, of military generals, of of uh, Russian administrators to to run the show because you know he's just one person. So we just we don't know how those people right now are feeling about all of this and how they'll they will feel about all of this a week from now. I think Russia I think Putin is in a very precarious situation personally and politically that's absolutely true and actually we you had mentioned this last episode when we had our guest star aiden mm -hmm. he had asked who you think would benefit the most or who you think would hurt the most from this war and you said i think russia russia will probably feel the most harm feel the brunt of this war mm -hmm. and we're seeing more and more that that is that is absolutely coming true russia is facing an unending amount of consequences from their actions so I think Putin absolutely underestimated the strength of the Ukrainian resistance, the strength of NATO's response, and the weakness of his own forces. President Biden, that was my audition for the National Security Council role I've been emailing you about. So, you know, I'm, I'm available. We wish you the best of luck with that, um, with that pursuit. Um, fantastic. Uh. Just listening to Harrison talk, I think it's interesting how... I think when this war started, when we first heard that Russia invaded Ukraine, um, I, I think me personally, and I know a lot of people around me, we kind of started to think of Russia as a monolith. We kind of disregarded all the internal tension, all the domestic conflict that we've been seeing in Russia for years in the news much before this happened. So I think it's just important, significant to look back on that and remember Russia is not a monolith. There are a, there is a vast array of opinions within Russia. There are opposition movements. There's Alexei Navalny. That's been on the news a lot. And there's, as Caden said, anti-war protests. So I think when discussing this war, when thinking about it, when sharing information about it, it's important to think that the action of the actions of Russia aren't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily reflect the opinions of all the citizens or even that many of the citizens. So just important to think, even as citizens of the United States or of the UK, we often don't agree with decisions that our government makes. So just something to reflect on. I think it's interesting to see that how living somewhere else, not living in Russia or not living in Europe, um, I, I, I think I personally have not really thought about that that much. So I think that was just an interesting thought that I got from listening to this conversation. That's really, that's a really good point, Bavia. And like Harrison said, 
there's a simultaneous deconstruction of the mythos around Putin, which I think is a really good, a really apt phrase. At the same time, we're also seeing a deconstruction of the veneer that Russia is one entity acting purely alone. And Absolutely. there's more scrutiny of some of the other movements and thoughts within within Russia. So I think that's very important. Mm. But the war continues. The war continues. Uh-huh. And it's impossible to tell when it will stop. We We hope that the diplomatic route might lead to some kind of stalemate or a full withdrawal from Russia or, or something of that kind, something that will lead to resolution. We mentioned last time that we don't have much faith in the diplomatic route anymore simply because of Putin's behaviour. But for me, I think some of that faith is returning a little. And I don't know whether this withdrawal from Kiev is simply a, a facade for some other military assault that Russia is planning. But if it is a, a true bona fide withdrawal, then there is the possibility that these talks are at least having partial success. So we continue to look towards both the diplomatic side and the military side for hope for this for this war. Moving on from the war to another piece of news that has been prominent over, and has arisen over the past day, um, we are seeing the first ever labor union for Amazon in the United States, where a team of Amazon workers forced the technology giant to recognize trade union for the first time. And this is a really significant moment in the history of Amazon and in the history of labor unions and in the history of big tech. So Harrison, tell me more about what has happened. So to, to understand what happened with the Amazon labor union, it's important to know how labor unions work in the United States. So here in the U.S., we have uh, a, a government board called the National Labor Relations Board that governs how union elections are done. And, of course, a, a union election is just after a, a petition is filed by a group of workers, a, an election is held on whether or not they they will choose to form a union. And we've been seeing this a lot in the, in the news, not only with Amazon, but, but with other Companies like Starbucks has been very prominent in the in the news here for the amount of unions that they've made. Uh, they have some, something like uh, over a dozen formed unions across the country at this time. Though those, those are all very very young here. Now with Amazon, it's important to know that this is the first Amazon union that has ever successfully happened. Now this this election it was held. Two days ago, I want to say two, one or two days ago, and right now we we can tell we can say that the union has won in this case. It's been a, a long fought battle for for that that's been going on for several months at this point. Four thousand seven hundred people voted in this union election, and twenty six and two thousand six hundred fifty four voted in favor, and two thousand one hundred thirty one against. So. It, the the measure has passed by about five hundred votes. So a very narrow margin, N- somewhat narrow. I, you know, th- this was a four thousand five hundred people. So a margin of five hundred isn't that bad, but still closer than it probably would have been otherwise. You know, Amazon has been accused of many anti labor practices, especially in this case, such as uh, the uh, intimidation of workers to not, to not join a union. And of course, none none of these claims are provable these are accusations so take what i'm saying with a few grains of salt but what we do know is that this is the first union election that has produced a positive result for a, a union in amazon history and of course they will go on 
to form the first union in Amazon's history. And of course, it's good to mention that labor in the, the, the United States is not where it was several decades ago and not where it is currently in other countries. So what we've been seeing in the past year or so in, in the post-COVID world has been a sort of renaissance of unions. And Starbucks is, is of course, leading the charge here. But if, but of course, now that the now that the Amazon workers here in Staten Island have voted to unionize, this could mean more drives to unionize in in other areas of big tech. We we could see Google unions, which I know have been uh, something that has been floated and failed before COVID, and of course, this could lead to more Amazon unions. So it's historic, it's interesting, and it could have nationwide implications. Yeah, and just to elaborate off of what Harrison's saying, I don't think the news has effectively shown how significant of news this is and how historic it is, as Harrison is saying. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, obviously, this is Amazon's first union. Um, That's a win in itself for labor. But in addition, uh, where the union came from is also very significant because it's very much against the odds. Um, It's actually, it's considered a third party because it's not affiliated with any national union. Um, and it was actually funded by GoFundMe by Christian Smalls, a former Amazon employee. So it it really was against all odds. They persevered through it and ended up getting that vote. And Amazon actually did have an anti-union campaign in Staten Island. They were urging their workers not to join the Amazon labor union, which they referred to as a third party. So yeah, there was a lot that could have derailed this union from ever occurring. There were a lot of steps that had to have gone right, and somehow they did, and the Amazon labor union has prevailed. Absolutely. And you mentioned Chris Smalls. So Chris Smalls was a a former Amazon worker who about two years ago organized a very small protest um, in front of an Amazon warehouse because he saw that a number of workers at Amazon were getting sick during the pandemic. And he was fired after that. Um, Amazon cited quarantine violations, but he has come back like a, a phoenix from the ashes, if you will, to successfully form this highly significant union. So we'll see how this progresses. Harrison, do you have any other thoughts about, you mentioned Google unions and and unions in other big tech companies. Are are they a possibility within the next few years or is this a more long-term thing? Are they possible at all? And what kind of steps have to be taken to create something like this? Well, expanding off the Google union, the Alphabet Workers Union, and of course Alphabet is Google's parent company, uh, does exist, and oh, it in in this company that has over one hundred thirty thousand people, they have a a membership of eight hundred. So safe to say, it's not very big. But the the uh, Google Union, the Alphabet Workers Union, does exist, and I think that with this new drive to to unionize, I think that this union could grow. There have been. Examples in the past of union votes failing at these tech companies. But now that uh, Amazon has kind of blazed a trail, I think that, we, that we'll be seeing a lot more. But I think, I think the really interesting part of this is that it seems that unions are no longer for you know, the blue-collar workers, the, the, you know, the, the physical laborers. I think, I think unions, in order to survive this new century, they have to come to uh, where the white collars workers are, where where the, the the tech workers are, because you know those blue collar jobs they, they just don't exist anymore. Be it by automation or globalization, I think unions are doing a very good job marking a very wise path 
with going to the, these white collar workers because the, they are the future. And actually, so here in the UK, we call them trade unions mm -hmm. and they serve a, a similar but slightly different role. When, when we look at them economically, we look at, at a trade union from the perspective of, if you will, a monopolistic supplier of labor, mm -hmm. because what it does is it's able to be a single body which is able to fix a, a sort of corporate minimum wage, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that's how we look at it from the perspective of the UK. And unions, they have a sort of sometimes have a bad rep here, given that they organize a lot of strikes. And most of the strikes that affect the people are strikes for things like tubes, um, which is our, our, our metro system mm -hmm. and the bus network and so forth. And this has an impact on people's lives because when there's a strike that happens, people can't get to work on time, they, they complain, services are don't run as efficiently. So unions have... They don't have as good a rep here as they might do elsewhere in the world, simply given that they, they impact the common people's lives more. Well, I, I'm not one to debate whether American unions fill the, fill the more traditional idea of a union. But I can say that uh, here in the U.S., unions play an almost political role. We see that, you know, unions are very much favored by the, the, the Democrats, by left-leaning people, and they are almost vilified on the right. Uh, I live in Kansas right now, a red state where unions are very much limited and their, their, their power, their abilities to strike and to form are very much limited by, by, state, by state law here. Now, we in, in other states, in more liberal states like California, we see almost what you described there, Kate. We see, uh, you know, whole sectors, whole professions striking like a teacher's unions are a good example of this striking and maybe causing people inconvenience but but striking nonetheless for what they think is fair and of course you know unions have the, the ability here in the u.s to donate unlimited amounts of money to political campaigns which often make them almost a target for political activism and that's just important to realize when you consider that not only are there corporate pressures on these unions forming or not forming but there are political ones as well that's really fascinating i i don't think that political aspect is quite as accentuated here in the uk mm -hmm. i guess partly because we don't have the concept of state law and i'd say that national law towards unions obviously it depends on the government at hand but compared to other places in the world is pretty lax mm -hmm. So unions can form, unions can act as they wish, obviously within the bounds of the regulation. But Bavia, what do you have to add to what Harrison said about the state of unions? I think Harrison pretty much covered most of it. But I also think it's interesting just to look back at the history of unions in the United States. Uh, for a long time, I believe in the 19th century, unions were frowned upon because of strikes, as you were saying. Um, they were impacting the civilians because of railroads. So if railroad workers are striking, obviously civilians can't get where they need to be getting. And that was a big thing in the 19th century. But as Harrison said, as we have come closer to this bipartisan system that we currently have, um, the, the left very much favors labor unions far more than the right does. So kind of looking at that, we see it has become a very, very politicized issue as many things have in the last few years. But yeah, I think it's it's just interesting to look back on that history. I think we experienced, or here in the United States, we experienced that frowning upon labor unions more so earlier, but now it's just a very divisive issue in many ways.
if, if I can add to that, it's worth noting that unions today are very are much much more peaceful than they were in the past. Uh, Good point. Our <laughs> our history classes here in the U.S. and I assume it I assume it's, it's the same way in Colorado, Bavia, but our our history our history classes here in the in Kansas. They highlight the the journey that the unions have had, but they've also mentioned that in the past unions were much more violent. Uh, there was a the deadliest Amer- day in American history outside of a war was the Battle of Blair Mountain, wherein uh, the the state of West Virginia and its National Guard faced off against an an, an army of, of striking coal miners. And this 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 was in West Virginia in the eighteen hundreds, and so. Labor unions before the, the the New Deal era, I'd say before the the nineteen thirties, mm-hmm. they were unregulated, violent, and uh, well, not not and not all of them were violent, of course, but many of them were. Many of them were. I think that uh, it's definitely good knowing our history, where 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 the unions came from, how they were, and just how just how the, these new government features features like the NLRB, how they impact how unions actually function. I think that's that I I would absolutely agree with that. I think that's a great point because, um, yeah, as Harrison said, unions are not they, today. They don't even look, I'd say, remotely similar to what they looked like back in the eighteen hundreds or the nineteen hundred or the early nineteen hundreds. So, yeah, I would absolutely agree. It's 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 interesting to see how the New Deal, how that era of the United States history changed, how labor works essentially. That's really fascinating, and now you've inspired me to go and learn more about the history of American labor unions, something that I had no knowledge of prior to this. Well, it's certainly a significant moment in the history of big tech companies and labor unions, this this formation of the Amazon labor union, and doubtless it's going to be in the history books that will be written about Amazon in the coming decades. But now we can't end this podcast without talking about arguably the most striking event that has taken place recently, (laughs) which is, of course, um, Will Smith's striking of Chris Rock at the Academy Awards. Harrison, give me a little bit of background to this issue as well as what happened. All I can say is that Twitter was fun that night. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So Will Smith's wife, uh, her name is Jada. She suffers from from alopecia, a, a, a medical condition in which she has lost all her hair. Uh, of course, the, of course, this uh, you know, hair to anyone is a big thing to lose. Just ask you know any any man in their late fifties. <laughs> so I understand that uh, she was not very happy a few nights ago at the Oscars when Chris Rock, who was the he was he wasn't the host. He was like a there for a stand-up thing. He, he, you know, he's he's a comedian. When he made a joke about her baldness in reference to the new G.I. Jane movie, in which a character was bald, a female character was bald, even though I, I assume so. I, I no one no one saw this this movie, so this this is about as famous, as famous as it's gonna get. And uh, Jada did not take it well when Will Smith saw this. He did not take it well either. And of course, I you know the story. You probably know the story. He walked up on stage, and slapped Chris Rock, uh, and then returned to his seat, and then yelled some profanities about why he did it. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. Uh, we we've all we've all we've all seen this. I think you're absolutely right, Harrison. And 
it was interesting to me how Will Smith, he seemed to take it well at first. He was, he was smiling and clapping and laughing along until he saw the distress that his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, was under following, following this, this joke. And he went on later to receive the first Oscar that he has won. And he did say a few words in apology as he received the award. And Barbie, I was going to ask you, do you think this shows that humans have become impulsive creatures or perhaps were we always impulsive creatures was this a moment of impulse or was this something that there was more thought behind well i that's a very good question um um, i don't know if it's so much about impulse i'd say more so it's about how we react to people around us how we react to people who we care about what they think of us um and i think that shows with how he how will smith wasn't really he wasn't upset by the joke at all at first, but looking at uh, his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, she, I believe she was rolling her eyes at the joke. Um, he saw that, and I think that spurred him into action. So I I don't know if it was really impulse. Um, I think it was he didn't want his wife to be upset or he cared about how she was feeling about the issue. Um, and also going back to what you said about how he apologized. Um, so Will Smith won his first Oscar for the movie King Richard that night. Um, and in his speech, he apologized to the Academy, uh, fellow members of the Academy and people who had won awards that night. But he didn't actually apologize to Chris Rock until later on Twitter, I think. So on social media. So that was also cause for controversy. He attended the Vanity Fair party after. And it was a big thing. A lot of people were upset at him for the actions he took that night and how he acted even afterward. He slapped Chris Rock. So and then finally, just recently, he also resigned from the Academy. So a lot going on there. Um, going back to your question, I don't know if it was so much about impulse, but I think it definitely played a part. I would say it, it was definitely an impulsive action, and we all saw what we all saw mm. what happened. But yeah, I think a lot probably went into that decision that he made, and now he's bearing the consequences of his actions. Yeah, and that's interesting. You mentioned Will Smith resigning from the Academy, Harrison. What does that actually mean? What kind of impact does it have on his career? Well, Ken, you're not going to believe this. The, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is a union. <gasps> really? Oh, yes, wow. it's a union. There you go. And so essentially, uh, essentially, uh, Will Smith has just resigned from the union. Oh, Goodness my. me. That all just came very full circle. <laughs> it really did. Listeners, that was an absolutely unintended connection that we've made on the podcast. But it turns out that Will Smith did indeed resign from a labor union. Well... Folks, on that rather hilarious note, we have run out of time for today's podcast episode. Please email us. No emails as of yet. We'd love to receive an email. We'd love to read out your comments, so please email us. But that is all we have time for today. Um, It's been a pleasure. I've been your host, Caden, and I've been joined by Harrison. Good being here. And Bavia. Thank you for listening. Uh, although I think he's famous enough that no one's going to try and stiff him out of his out of his complimentary uh, bread. <laughs> Fuck. You know what I mean? The the, the free food they, the free food they have at movies on oh. movie sets. No one's going to. Yeah. Okay. Just scrap that. Just scrap that all. <laughs> yeah. He's famous enough. No, no one's going to deny him his cookies. I I can. I I don't think I don't think I have to reenact it. No, okay. hopefully not. Okay. I'd have to come come down to Kansas uh, so that we could reenact it. That's crazy. I, it was I, a union. Isn't that crazy? That makes sense. I just, I never thought of that.